we would go into the room of somebody who was type two diabetic and my preceptor would say, okay, we're going to teach them how to eat carbohydrates consistently. I would be like, oh, well, wait, I thought they were type two diabetic. I mean, can't they not tolerate carbs? Shouldn't we teach them how to reduce their carbs? We, uh, we had a patient that had a traumatic car accident. So they were being fed uh, nasogastrically with the tube. And I remember flipping over the ingredients and I'm like, oh my God, look at this. This is the exact same tube feed ingredients I was fed when I was 12 years old. You know, I had a serious eating disorder and was in uh, hospitalized inpatient. If someone's been in a car accident or they've had burns or they have cancer and we're feeding them nasogastrically, I mean, is this the best we have? You know, the number one ingredients are maltodextrin, corn syrup, soy protein, and canola oil. And then I discovered the carnivore diet. Like many people, I was like, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Like, why would you cut out fruits and vegetables? That was my indoctrination. You know, yeah. most, most people don't go the extra step. And I was like, well, let me, let me do some research on this. And I really did a deep dive into bioavailability. And that is something we are not taught as dietitians. What can my body actually use and absorb? And I found that meat and organs and animal fat was highly, highly absorbable. Our, our healthcare system is set up to where I, I cannot kill you because if I kill you, I lose you as a customer, but I cannot heal you because if I heal you, I lose you as a customer. I have to keep you perpetually sick. Welcome to the Live Damn Well podcast. My goal with this project is pretty simple. In a world which has become increasingly divisive and polarized, I wanna bring you a balanced perspective of health. To deliver on that promise, I'll seek out experts with conflicting opinions to tackle the topic of health from as many angles as possible in order to make this podcast into an amazing resource for anyone looking to improve their health. Thanks for joining me. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we're going to be talking with Michelle Hearn, a registered dietitian, to talk about her book, The Dietitian's Dilemma. I was really excited to get her on here for reasons that I will explain later on, but still hoping to get more plant-based advocates here. I'm not trying to make this into an echo chamber for my own personal opinions, but they have yet to respond. So, that might mean that we might just need to take a little break from this series, Is Red Meat Healthy? As this is the second episode of that series. Um, but if so, I will keep on pestering these vegans and plant-based advocates so they can come on the show and I can talk to them. One thing before we get into it, if you have enjoyed this podcast or if you're a new listener and you like this episode, please think about supporting the show in one of the following ways. You can buy me a coffee with the link in the description. You can share this episode and write a review for the show. That would be very helpful in you know, increasing the visibility of the show. And you can buy from some of the sponsors of this episode. And the sponsor of today's podcast is Thrive Market. Thrive Market is basically just a Whole Foods in virtual form. And you get a very large discount when you buy from them as compared to if you were to go and buy foods from a health food store, right? And they also deliver right to your door. So highly recommended for, you know, non-toxic cosmetics, for cleaning products, for groceries, for healthy packaged foods, basically. And they even ship 
uh, frozen wild caught beef and wild wild caught beef nope wild caught fish and grass-fed beef so check them out you'll get a discount to them as well link will be in the description now let's get on with the show Today I have with me Michelle Hearn, registered dietitian, an ultra runner, and author of The Dietitian's Dilemma. I'm very excited to have you on today because I had Jessica Turton on before this, and she's also a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and also um, emphasizes a more of a low-carbohydrate, animal-based way of eating. Um, and it's, it's super interesting because here we have two registered dietitians who a lot of people kind of throw shade at nutritionists, right, because they're not as... Um, credentialed, I guess, regulated as, you know, a dietitian is. Um, and you have a lot more, I would say, nutritionists who are, do fall in line with like the low carb or the keto or like alternative, basically, um, uh, diets as you would have with the dietitian who's more in line with like the conventional approaches, right? And so I found that kind of incredible that you had people that kind of totally went away from what they were indoctrinated with to begin with. Um, so let's start there for you. What what started that transition to make you question everything, right? Yeah, gosh, you know, when I, when I was, when I became a dietitian, I was a young dietitian, there was, there was definitely things that I, I questioned. So I became a dietitian in 2009 and I got into the dietetic internship in 2008. And like you said, yeah, to become a registered dietitian, then you get your four-year degree, then you have to get into an internship and then sit for the exam. And, you know, when I was an intern, I just, you know, I saw things that didn't really make sense. You know, for example, we would go into the room of somebody who was type two diabetic and my preceptor would say, okay, we're going to teach them how to eat carbohydrates consistently, you know, you know, 60, 90 grams in the morning and then 60, 90 grams in the afternoon, 60, 90 evening and 15 gram of carbohydrate snacks. And I would just ask questions. I would be like, oh, well, wait, I thought they were type two diabetic. I mean, can't they not tolerate carbs? Shouldn't we teach them how to reduce their carbs? And I was always like, oh, no, no, we have, everybody has to have carbohydrates. And then when we went to the ICU, we, uh, we had a patient that had a traumatic car accident. So they were being fed uh, nasogastrically with the tube. And I remember flipping over the ingredients and I'm like, oh my God, look at this. This is the exact same tube feed ingredients I was fed when I was 12 years old. You know, I had a serious eating disorder and was in uh, hospitalized inpatient. And so I just asked questions. I was like, hey, you know, if someone's been in a car accident or they've had burns or they have cancer and we're feeding them nasogastrically, should the first ingredients of tube feeding formulas, I mean, is this the best we have? You know, the number one ingredients are maltodextrin, corn syrup, soy protein, and canola oil. And I was just told like, oh, Michelle, it's calories in, calories out, you know, but you're a student, you're, you know, trying to make your way, you're trying to learn. But as you know, you know, back then in 2009, the Academy of Nutrition, which was called the uh, American Dietetics Association, which is the governing board of all dietitians, was sponsored by Hershey's, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, Frito-Lay. Um, <laughs> not much better today. I've, I've made a few videos and jokes that we are, um, as of 2021, the dietitians are now sponsored by the National Confectionery Association. So we are literally sponsored by candy. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, so, you know, you, you don't have to be a member of the Academy of Nutrition to be a registered dietitian. And I have adamantly refused since I was much, you know, younger in my early twenties, I just thought 
correctly, in my opinion, that, you know, sponsorship affects what you're, what you're being taught and what the continuing education you're receiving. But, you know, it wasn't really until I lost my own health in 2019 that I made a big difference. But before then, you know, practicing as an acute care dietitian, I really struggled. I, you know, I brought it to the attention of my, my clinical directors that I just had this tremendous, you know, you have so many patients you have to see, you have such little time to see people and, you know, you're just taught to teach them the, the nutrition guidelines, kind of the same nonsense that got them in this, you know, <laughs> in this mess in the first place, whether they're right. type, type two diabetic, whether they have heart failure. Um, and, you know, just so people know too, like, <laughs> we don't see patients that are like, oh, this person's, you know, has diabetes or this person, most of the patients that an acute care dietitian will see, it's like a two, two sentence of what's going on with them. It's hypertension, you know, um, COPD, obesity, like so many different things. Mm -hmm. And we know a lot of these things are connected to nutrition. So anyway, yeah, you know, in 2019, I was actually attempting to qualify for the Olympic trials in the marathon. I was, um, I'd run a 254 at that time. You needed to run a 255 or under to qualify. And I was working a job. I knew I was a neurodietitian. Oh, well, I wasn't a neurodietitian, but I was a new to um, the facility I was working at. Mm -hmm. I was working at a psychiatric facility as well as a acute care facility. And um, my health just started to fail. Like all of a sudden during my runs, I wasn't recovering well. And, you know, it, and this wasn't just like unusual soreness. This was, I would go for a couple mile run and I would start to get cold sweats. My body was aching. Um, you know, I've, I've struggled with anxiety my whole life, but it went from, um, difficult to unmanageable to where mm -hmm. I was having to call out of work. I had a panic attack once and had to, um, leave in the middle of a shift. Mm -hmm. Uh, things were bad. And so, you know, of course you, you do went and saw my family doctor um, got some blood tests. It was like, my magnesium was a little bit low. <laughs> she mm -hmm. was like, Oh, you just need spinach and we'll put you on an antidepressant. And I'm like, no, that's definitely not it. Um, I talked to two friends who are sports dietitians and they told me I needed more carbohydrates at that point. I was eating about 300 grams. So of course being motivated, I doubled down, you know, started eating four or 500 grams of carbohydrates and things went from bad to worse. And, you know, I always call it <laughs> kind of my come to Jesus moment. Um, I had a challenging day at the hospital. We had a patient pass away. I came home. I fell asleep like really early. Like I'm going to say, you know, two, three in the afternoon just crashed. And I woke up in the middle of the night with just searing pain. Like it felt like my body was on fire. Mm -hmm. And I remember standing in the kitchen and just, I didn't know what to do. I had tried, you know, every over the counter <laughs> anti-inflammatory. I tried stronger things. I tried, you know, alcohol, I, nothing was working. And so at 2 a.m., I drove to 7-Eleven and I got 20 pounds of ice. I put it in the bathtub. I'm in there crying. And my wife came in and was like, you know, maybe we should do something differently. And at that point, I decided, yes, this is it. This is stupid. I am physically, mentally, spiritually broken. Like I'm, I'm done running. You know, mm -hmm. at that point I was 36 and I'm too old to be competitive. This is dumb. I can't even, I mean, I wasn't showing up in any area of my life. I was a, not a great partner. I was a, a less than ideal employee and my athletics, you know, obviously was non-existent. So, so yeah, that was the point. I made a big change. So at that point you were following like the standard nutritional advice of whole grains, low fat, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's important to note that I, I, at that point, I still, 
you know, I ate protein, you know, I ate mm -hmm. meats. I, but I had a very high carbohydrate diet. I, and I would say <laughs> mostly, you know, those healthy quote unquote whole grains. We had a lot of um, rice, a lot of like, you know, gluten-free breads and pastas, but I mean, I had granola bars. I had, you know, a sugary coffee drink. I always had some type of cookie or dessert. Um, yeah. And I, I certainly, I don't think I went out of my way to be like low fat, but it, you know, I didn't add fats to things for sure. Right. And I ate a ton of vegetables. Oh my gosh. I lots and lots of vegetables. Um, yeah. And, you know, I struggled too with chronically low iron. I was, I was supplementing with iron quite a bit. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it, I knew, knew, you know, I intuitively knew that carbohydrates did not make me feel well. Like I didn't like, I felt, you know, sometimes I would feel that low blood sugar, but mm -hmm. I just, I believed so strongly in all this indoctrination that I would need a certain amount of carbohydrates just to live. Like if I'm never going to run again, I'm going to need some, but as an athlete, well, God, I needed to get as many as my body could handle. Mm -hmm. But, <laughs> right, right, right. but you know, it's funny how sometimes we'll continue in these patterns when they're clearly not working. And, um, you know, at that point I I'm grateful that I just, you know, I decided like, well, if I'm not going to run, my body clearly needs a break, you know, mm -hmm. I'm gonna, I'm going to go very low carb. I, I had intended to just do like a ketogenic, um, diet. I was familiar with keto and keto is a bad word in the, <laughs> to most of the dietetic communities. It's, it's very silly. You know, when you look in the research, it's one of the most, um, healthy ways of eating, but, um, Anyway, so uh, then I discovered the carnivore diet and I was, right. you know, like many people, I was like, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Like, why would you cut out fruits and vegetables? But that's where that was my indoctrination. You know, yeah. most, most people don't go the extra step. And I was like, well, let me, let me do some research on this. Let me look at this. And I really did a deep dive into bioavailability. And that is something we are not taught as dietitians. We are not taught about bioavailability, meaning what can my body actually use and absorb? And I found that meat and organs and animal fat was highly, highly absorbable. And I was like, wow, I've really kind of skewed these things. You know, like I said, I ate meat, but I wasn't eating large quantities of meat. I wasn't, um, I certainly wasn't adding butters and tallows to my, my meals. Mm -hmm. And so many plants can actually block the absorption of nutrient uh, nutrition, you know, specifically phytic acid. I mean, I probably, right. <laughs> I probably was eating more phytic acid from grains and oats and bean, you know, peanuts and stuff, peanut butter. And so, yeah, I, I was like, that's interesting. You know, maybe yeah. this could, this could change. Maybe this could change my health. Yeah, no, and I want to uh, begin to unravel. I know you already touched on some of the main topics, like, you know, the anti-nutrients, the, you know, the metabolic health, the um, blood sugar variability. Um, but before we do that, I wanted to read like a small quote from the beginning of your book, which Thank you. said, the current nutritional guidelines will keep you alive, but it may not be a life worth living. So could you kind of expand on that a little bit? I know you already touched on your story um, from 2019. Sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, having worked in the hospital, you know, for many years, I saw a lot of sickness and I saw some death, but I mostly saw people living the most profoundly unfortunate lives, you know, and I'm not talking like your 90, hundred year old grandparents. I'm talking about people around my age, thirties, forties, people even younger than me with heart failure, you know, the people, um, 
when you follow the nutrition guidelines, you're, you're likely going to fail. You're going to get diabetic. You're probably going to be obese. Um, if you do not get enough fat in your diet, you are hungry. Our, our nutrition guidelines shift you to eating a lot of processed sugar and carbohydrates, which we also know can profoundly affect your mental health. So our, our healthcare system is set up to where I, I cannot kill you because if I kill you, I lose you as a customer, but I cannot heal you because if I heal you, I lose you as a customer. I have to keep you perpetually sick. And, you know, we know specifically things like diabetes. um, Well, I mean, I was going to go with just diabetes, but unfortunately heart disease and, you know, depression, other things are increasing exponentially, but we'll just take diabetes. Mm -hmm. Um, That is a horribly painful disease. Cause yes, you want to do a consistent carbohydrate diet. You want to follow the nutrition guidelines, eat your chicken, eat your low fat salad, eat your rice. You're going to be hungry. You're going to be diabetic. Um, and yes, you'll be alive, but you're probably going to go blind. You're probably going to have your leg cut off. You're probably going to have your teeth rot. Like I've seen all these things. I've seen non-healing wounds. I was introduced to maggot therapy when I worked in Boulder, Colorado. I thought it was a joke, but we had people with wounds that were so profoundly bad. We, you actually put maggots on people, <laughs> people who oh are living, God. breathing, you put maggots to eat away the flesh. Oh. Um, yes. So um, you know, we now, we now know, you know, there's statistics that, uh, people are living longer, you know, even though there was a time when, when that dipped for a bit, but the quality of our years is just, you know, is profoundly bad. You know, if you're, in my opinion, if you're not able to get up and walk and smile and eat and, you know, do your activities, activities of daily living, basic things, bathing, showering, that is not a good quality of life. And we have many people in their 50s, 60s, 70s that are unable to do just basic um, activities of daily living. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think that part of what gets misconstrued when we're talking about like looking at our, you know, early hunter-gatherer ancestors um, is the fact that there's a low average lifespan. And Mm -hmm. by looking at that, you would say, oh, you know, like what we're doing now is much better, right? Like our nutrition is great, our medicine is great. Like there's nothing that we can learn from them. Right. But then if you actually start to look into the research on their lifespans and and looking at, for example, um, median lifespan uh, in the Hadza, for example, you see that they do live up to well beyond their 70s. Um, And the reason for that low average lifespan is because you have the outliers such as a high infant mortality. Right. But they don't have once they get to that 70 year old year point, they don't have those chronic diseases like we do. Right. And so there's just so much to be learned about a good quality of life rather than just extending a poor quality of life with pharmaceuticals. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you nailed it. Unfortunately, you know, people will look at, um, you know, like um, the, even like the Maasai and the Inuit Mm -hmm. Eskimos and, um, you know, and be like, oh, look at, you know, they're only living till 30 or 40, but, you know, their their life expectancy isn't uh, that great. But, you know, like what you said, they, they're pretty much free of chronic diseases. Like Mm -hmm. our healthcare system, is like, if you are in a traumatic car accident or God help you, or like have a massive wound, mm-hmm. um, is amazing. Like acute yeah. things like there's, I wouldn't want to be nowhere else in the world than America. Like if I'm in a car accident, I they'll take care of you, but for chronic problems, it is an absolute nightmare, Atrocious. absolute nightmare. Yes. <laughs> and so I think it makes sense for us to look at, um, you know, primitive, like how, how can we get back? You know, obviously we want to utilize, like, I appreciate, you know, indoor plumbing and sanitation and, you know, and uh, things like that. 
to extend my life. But mm-hmm. um, by depending on our healthcare system as we get older, you know, with all these pharmaceuticals and, um, you know, just <laughs> nonsense recommendations, um, it's been, it's been a, you know, it's causing, you don't have to be a, a scientist or a brilliant human to just look around you. Like, oh my gosh, I was visiting my sister this past weekend. Um, she lives right outside of Anaheim, you know, staying at a hotel. And I was shocked by how many obese children I saw like obesity, you know, actually the, the highest demographic for obese humans is children ages two to five, um, which makes me wow. worry about the next generation quite a bit. But, you know, what we're doing with our health is we're, we're basically setting people up to where they're, you know, they're going to, they're going to have chronic diseases. And then our treatment for chronic disease keeps them sick. <laughs> it's a very, it's a profoundly backward system. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to give you the opportunity to um, see if I'm getting this right in terms of, you know, what it is about the nutritional guidelines, which are, you know, tend to hurt more than help in many instances. Um, so we have like the anti-nutrients that you talked on, and we can also expand on those later on, um, you know, metabolic health, um, inflammation of the gut. Um, is there anything else that I'm missing there? Um, you know, I would say there's two big things in the um, nutrition guidelines, specifically, uh, sugar, you know, sugar processed carbohydrates and seed oils are, they recommend seed oils. You know, if you look at them, it's like have canola oil, avoid butter, um, you know, use sugar in moderation, which, you know, we know our moderation is such a strange and arbitrary term. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, you nailed it too. And, and, and you know, what's interesting is there's, there's this notion among doctors, you know, when I worked in healthcare, that, oh, it's not the guidelines that are the problem. It's people aren't following them. People just need to eat more fruits and vegetables. But when you look at the statistics, I've said this before, we're eating as a nation, we're actually eating more fruits and vegetables. We're eating a lot more wheat flour, um, but we, we have significantly decreased the amount of animal fats we eat and the amount of um, you know oils, vegetable oils has skyrocketed. It's over 200% more than what it was in the seventies. And the, I believe the combination of that and the combination of increasing our processed carbohydrates and sugar um, has just been this recipe for inflammation and oxidation and all kinds of chronic diseases. Yeah. And, and the crazy thing is, is that used to be normal, like eating, you know, higher amounts of meat and, and fat, like tallow, for example, like I think McDonald's either used lard or tallow for their French fries before. I think they did tallow right? I think until the eighties. They did tallow. Yep. Yeah. 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 And so it, it's amazing that we had this complete um, 180 degree turn in our recommendations. And now we seem to kind of be slowly going back towards, you know, um, a healthier way of eating, I guess people are like, kind of like waking up to, um, different ways of eating that were controversial, but now seem to have more evidence behind them. Yeah. Isn't it curious when you just take a step back, like you said, it's contra it's, it's still very controversial in the dietetics community to recommend like a a low carb diet. It's like, this is what humans evolved. <laughs> this is, and you know, it's like, you'll see websites and stuff that say meat causes cancer meat is inflammatory. It's like, if that was true, the human race wouldn't exist. Like just take the emotion out of it for a second. Like, let's just use common sense. It's amazing that we've truly allowed propaganda to override our common sense. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more. And I have come, I will say, you know, part of what this podcast is about is me trying to be as objective as possible. And in that, I have found people like yourself. And I interviewed, I don't know if you know, Dr. Mickey Bendor, but he is, um, he's kind of a big controversial figure in anthropology, because he is, 
his theory on human evolution is that we pretty much evolved hunting very, very large animals, um, what he called megafauna. And so he thinks that the reason that, uh, you know, our, our jaws got smaller, our, um, our skulls got thinner, um, and, you know, many other aspects of our um, basically physical degeneration over the past few thousand years since the agricultural revolution has been because we're not getting some of the nutrients that we used to have ample amounts of, you know, which is another argument for animal based eating. It's how can you say that, you know, meat is bad for you if it's literally one of the most nutrients dense foods that exist, right? It has, you know, vitamin K2, the, you know, preformed vitamin A, like you have so many of these critical things that you will probably not get enough of in plant foods. Yeah. I mean, I'm right there with you. And that's another thing that we're just not, if, if we're taught, it's so glazed over about the, once again, bioavailability, because you'll, you'll have people come back and be like, oh, you can get vitamin K and leafy greens, but it's not the absorbable form. And we actually know there was a study that came out that about 45% of humans cannot absorb plant-based vitamin A. You know, it, you, people are like, oh, you get vitamin A and carrots and sweet potatoes. It's like, no, that is not, your body actually has to go through a process to change that to a usable form of vitamin A. And not everyone has the, the genetic capabilities to do that. Yes. Where like, obviously in the animal foods, like liver, your body, you know, you don't have to do that. So it's very absorbable. Yes. You know, a lot of people have severe acne, skin issues and things. They, they're desperate, <laughs> desperately need vitamin A. They don't yeah. need a, you know, antibiotics or whatever yeah. they're usually prescribed. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, no, I, I did as well. And so it's, uh, it's interesting that, um, you know, there's just so many myths, you know, we, some of the biggest myths out there are that plant-based diets are good for um, the planet or good for human health. You know, it's, um, you know, we all have a, a different physiology, you know, I have a, I have a dog, I have, and I have a tortoise and they eat very differently <laughs> because they have very different physiology. Well, mm -hmm. humans, you know, humans have a physiology that absorbs nutrition from, you know, animal meat, fat and organs incredibly well and absorbs nutrition from plants pretty poorly. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean you can't have plants. I think a lot of people, I would say most people can tolerate um, plants and we know throughout evolution, you know, especially when meat was scarce, people ate roots and, you know, bark and berries and whatever was available, but that was a very, very small, I mean, that did not make up much of their calorie content, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, um, it's interesting to me that there's this whole wave of people that, uh, believe. <laughs> and if you look at some of these, you know, fake plant products, it's just, it's a total, it's a total, um, hoax you know they're made with all kinds of artificial ingredients and if you think getting beyond burger from silicon valley is good for the environment then golly it's once again it's just propaganda it's overriding people's common sense yeah no absolutely i agree with you and i wanted to get um because i know you mentioned in your book um diana rogers and i wanted to try to get her on because um you know she has some very compelling arguments you know for meat eating for sustainable um sustainably sourced meat eating right um mm -hmm. and the fact that these these cows i mean these grazers are such a, uh, a crucial part of our ecosystem of our um you know keeping our the earth healthy basically and if you get rid of those and you stop to eat those and there's really no reason to care for them and allow them to <laughs> you know eat the grass and then poop on the grass and then um, actually <laughs> fix carbon back into the soil right you don't have that anymore yeah. I mean, we yeah. know that uh, regenerative farming actually sequesters carbon in the soil. I mean, if you want to save the planet, in my opinion, it makes sense to live in a way, eat in a way, support th things that 
put carbon back in the soil. And like you said, when you're, when you have, um, you know, I love that white oak pastures calls it uh, radically traditional farming. I mean, this is mm-hmm. what they used to do before industrialized farming is yeah. the animals get to graze freely. And when they do that, you know, like you said, they eat the grass, the poop, they, they, it basically is this, the cycle that is supposed to happen to make sure the soil is, um, you know, fertile. And then, you know, we eat, obviously we eat the animals that nourishes our bodies and it, the cycle keeps going. Like that's in my opinion, how, um, <laughs> how health is supposed to go, how nutrition is supposed to go. Unfortunately, you know, it's very strange. I mean, there are some basic facts of nature, like, you know, and that's another thing that I think is, is kind of silly about this plant-based movement is like all life requires death, you know, veganism, mm-hmm. you know, we know that about eight, I believe it's about 8 billion animals are killed <laughs> um, when you're growing, you know, monocropping kale or soy or quinoa, like life requires death. And just yeah. because you're eating a soy burger, it doesn't mean that you haven't chopped up gophers and rabbits in order yeah. to plant your soy. So, and as opposed to, you know, doing this dogmatic nonsense, it makes sense to say like, how can I raise your, how can I support a sustainable system? You know, my, my wife and I are fortunate that we live very close to, we, we buy a cow share, you know, I, we visited the farm, we've done a video actually on the farm, um, you know, and our farmer says, you know what, my cows have one bad day. Their whole lives are amazing. Obviously the end of their life is, but it's very quick. It's over. And that's, um, you know, that's in my opinion, how, how we should do things. Yeah. I, I, I like that quote. There's only one bad day in their life. One bad day. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. No. And I would much rather be, first of all, nourishing myself more by, by eating animals. And also when you're, when you're doing that, you are contributing to the life. You're part of the life cycle. You, You can't just opt out of the life cycle by choosing to be vegan. You just don't see it. Right. And in a way you're, not only kind of pretending to opt out of the life cycle, but you're also depriving yourself of all of these different nutrients in meat. Exactly. And I saw a pretty, a pretty staggering trend when I work in psychiatric care. A lot of people believe that they needed to go plant-based or plant-based can help their mental health. And there's nothing further from the truth. You know, we know that neurotransmitters, specifically serotonin, require a lot of these cofactors that are, um, you know, very bioavailable in meat, including B12, folate, iron, um, you know, some zinc. And so, yeah, it's, I like that. I'm going to use it. You can't opt out of the life cycle, you know, once again, you can't, but it's amazing to me that we think that eating a beyond burger is, is good for the planet. We think that eating some processed bread between a processed patty with God knows what is, is good for your health or good for the planet. Like that's, that's just not true. Yeah. It's, um, it's kind of amazing that I saw, who was it? It's, it's a pretty popular dietitian actually in the plant-based space who had a post that said, I will recommend a Beyond Burger over, you know, a, even like a grass-fed steak any day. And it's just, wow, like, can't believe that you would say that. Um, just given the ingredients, the laundry list of ingredients that you have in that thing. Well, I will tell you that um, to be a, the dietitians that they're, you know, Coca-Cola, Kellogg, some of them, they hire dietitians and they pay a lot of money. And, mm. you know, I've seen positions available. And so I don't know what this particular individual is working for or getting kickbacks from or whatever, but it's, um, it can be a very, you know, it's sad. And yeah. I would, I would, I would hope that nobody would willingly know. And that's one thing, like I can't practice in the hospital anymore. I was actually right. running the other day thinking how freaking ridiculous it is that I, 
have all these student loans and did everything. And I have all this knowledge and I can't even teach it because the system is so backwards and messed up, you know, like I would have to go and teach things that hurt people and I'm not doing it. Um, and so, yeah, it's tough. It's really tough. And so you kind of have to either sell out or, um, you know, figure out something else. It, it makes me very hopeful that there are people who cannot be bought out and people who are, you know, willing to face the consequences of, you know, going against the grain, even if it costs them their either their medical license or, you know, you can't practice in the hospital, you're still willing to say what is most true because you know what the conventional approach is and you saw that it wasn't working. And so you did something about it. I think like, you know, the studies are great, like scientific research is great, but if that's your Bible and you can't innovate new solutions, if you can't think about any new way to come at a problem, then it kind of becomes something that's limiting rather than something that gives you good new information. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, I do want to validate that, like, I've had a lot of people reach out to me that are in the hospital system and they are like, I don't know what to do, like dietitians, because I I hear you and I agree with you but maybe they're not in a position to leave. Like financially, yeah. their family's dependent on them. I mean, I, when I discovered my health, like I had to stay for like six months, like before I could figure out my next you know, step, just because yeah. financially you have to kind of like figure out what you're going to do next. So I hear that and I'm so sorry. And I wish I had good advice or good answers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my best advice would be to, to do everything you can to find an exit, see if there's something else you can, you know, network or other opportunity you can, you can do. Um, but you're, you're right. And I think that one of the best things about, you know, a low carb animal based approach is the results tend to be relatively quick. You know, I had incredibly improved mental, like (laughs) reduction in anxiety in weeks, you know, mental clarity, um, was able to run again within a month, like Mm -hmm. things, things change dramatically. And, you know, obviously once you see it, you can't unsee it, but, um, you know, we're also dealing with a population that is, very addicted, addicted to sugar, addicted to processed foods. As a society, we have very poor coping (laughs) mechanisms. You know, we use food as a coping strategy and change is hard and scary. You know, I'm sure you, and I know, certainly I know people that won't give up soda, you know, and we know how much better their health would be, or they won't give up something, even though they struggle with depression or obesity. Um, and that's also my, you know, when people ask me like, Oh my God, how do I, how do I change my dad, my mom, my brother, my friend? You know, you can't, you it's cannot tough. change anybody. All you can do is, um, you know, you live, live the example. And I always have a few <laughs> phrases ready. If people ask me like, oh, why, why'd you bring your own food? Or why are you eating that? You know, just something quick, like, oh yeah, my anxiety is so much better, you know, but until people are ready, until people ask you, mm-hmm. you know, it's really, <laughs> you just have yeah. to live it, you know? Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think um, at least at the beginning, right? And it's not to throw my parents under the bus, but um, when I first started learning a little bit more about nutrition and I would tell them things that I would learn, they'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, that's 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 cool. But then I would see them, you know, doing things that um, at the time I thought were unhealthy. Um, so yeah, you cannot force change on someone. That's something that I've come to learn also as a health coach. It's like, you are never supposed to do that. Um, and Yeah, because that's the way forward, right? It's like, we can have these conversations with people who agree with us all we want. And it's fun. And it's great to throw out new ideas. But if you can't have conversations with people who disagree, and with people who are not on your on on your side, right, um, of whatever argument it may be, then you can't go about, you know, changing people's lives and changing people's opinions for the better. 
No, that's true. And so I think it's, um, and that's one thing that I always strive to be too, is I want to be open. You know, I always say, I'm not afraid to be wrong. <laughs> I'm wrong a lot. You know, that's, that's the only way we learn and grow and change, um, is to evolve, adapt, you know, um, and that's, and I also tell people that in nutrition, you know, what starts working for you right now will shift as your goal shift, you know, certainly as an ultra runner, my, my goals and needs are different than someone who maybe is obese and, you know, trying to lose weight or diabetic, um, but it is important. And I think it's important to, you know, as a country, just Jesus, we're so <laughs> polarized on opposite sides. So being able to hear somebody and, you know, listen and validate, like I'm always, I'm always up for hearing, you know, often I certainly want to, may not agree with what's being said, but um, no, I, I definitely hear that. I want to shift gears a little bit towards mental health um, because, you know, this whole series is about is red meat healthy for you? And I wanted to kind of tackle it from a bunch of different angles. And I know that you know, where you came from was from eating disorders from like, you know, um, not being able to perform athletically, uh, in some ways. So I, I really want to dig deeper on how exactly is it that, you know, some of the things that we're told to consume, and you know, the conventional nutritional guidelines may be hurting or harming our brain health. And then sure. what are the things that you include into your diet, which can actually be beneficial? Yeah. So there's a couple different um, ways to kind of talk about a mental health. So, you know, the traditional nutrition guidelines tell you like, oh, all these fruits and vegetables and whole grains are good for your brain. Your brain likes colorful fruits and vegetables. Um, but, you know, they've actually done several studies on that. They actually had a seven year long study and followed people that were really strict on the nutrition guidelines, um, you know, that reported um, depression, anxiety, you know, before <laughs> and they actually got worse. A lot of them dropped out of the study. Um and so, you know, what we know about, certainly, like I said earlier, what we know about um, neurotransmitters, you know, making sure we have those neurotransmitters is you need a lot of those vitamins, minerals, and cofactors. But a few things that I found really interesting, two things, one from uh, Dr. Georgia Ede and the other from Dr. Chris Palmer. Um, Dr. Georgia Ede was the first one who taught me that, you know, when we consume a lot of processed foods and we're talking seed oils, a lot of sugar, a lot of those ultra processed carbohydrates over time, those can actually have the same impact on neurotransmitters of our brain as a major trauma or illicit substances. And when I say that, what can happen, let's say you're someone who just massively eats, you know, junk food every day is you have, I mean, most people are very familiar with like uh, dopamine and serotonin, but glutamate, glutamate is a neurotransmitter that's very important in your brain. Glutamate and GABA, your brain wants to keep that balance very, very stable. Well, when you eat too many processed foods over time, that can actually shift glutamate up to a hundred times the normal level that it's supposed to be. And we see high levels of glutamate in um, victims of uh, people that have uh, committed suicide, people who've done a lot of illicit drugs. It, your brain does not want to have glutamate up that high. And what happens when the glutamate um, shifts up that high is it actually suppresses neuroplasticity meaning that your brain cannot mold, change, or adapt, and you can no longer cope with stress. So, you know, what we have in society now, is we have a lot of people who are, you know, we're, we're in a very stressful time, you know, just coming off of COVID, um, you know, you, and if you're trying to shift and change your behavior, but you're eating all this processed food, you know, it's like that saying, it goes in one ear and out the other, you literally cannot change your behavior. You know, they had an interesting study I cite in my book with um, people, cocaine, that were dealing mm -hmm. with uh, cocaine addiction. And that way they found cocaine really shifted glutamate 
up very high and the people who continued to use and they had high levels of glutamate relapsed like they could not override their brain's ability you know they wanted, <laughs> clearly they wanted to to um to be abstinent Right. And the whole moral of the study was, oh, we need a drug that can fix this glutamate. But the point being, like, we need to keep that level. We need to do everything we can. Um, and what, and you know, when you eat ultra processed foods, not only do you get that glutamate shift, you get a rise in dopamine. Most people feel great. You feel euphoric if you're eating a lot of sugar, or, you know, high fat, high sugar, ultra processed foods. And then you, a lot of people will get a crash. So very, very damaging to mental health. And then we also know Dr. Chris Palmer has talked about that you can be insulin resistant in the brain and have zero signs of insulin resistance in the body. And what does that mean? Like if somebody is dealing with massive depression, severe anxiety, OCD, they go to a doctor, they get all their labs run, everything's normal. They talk to a psychiatrist, they get put on meds, maybe they don't get better, you know, and that happens a lot in society. And we have a lot of people that think like, you know what? I'm just going to be depressed, anxious my whole life. Like this life just sucks. I mean, maybe I'm in and out of institutions, but um, I mean, a good way to think about this concept is epilepsy. You know, babies are born with epilepsy. It's a seizure disorder. And when they eat glucose, when they take in sugar or carbs, they often have seizures. So what do we do? We put them on a ketogenic diet. So they're getting ketones to the brain. Right. Seizure stop. And so potentially if you have insulin resistance in the brain, it's just the brain, you know, for some people it's seizures, for some people it's the areas of the brain are not communicating. And when we're fueling the brain with ketones, a, a lot of people are able to improve their mental health. Dr. Chris Palmer is actually doing a study on the ketogenic diet with schizophrenia to see uh, how that improves. Um, but that's just not, once again, that's not something we talk about. You know, most people that are diagnosed with a major depressive disorder, anxiety are not going to be told by their practitioner, like, yeah, you really should, or just given the option, like, Hey, we could try a ketogenic diet because potentially you have insulin resistance in the brain, you know? So, yeah. so that is, so, I mean, I guess that's a long winded way of saying that, you know, certainly including meat, you know, when I, you know, I shared in the book, when I, you know, for like 30 days, I pretty much just did beef and butter mm -hmm. <laughs> and salt and coffee. Um, my mental health went, you know, I, I went from being so anxious. Like I said, sometimes I couldn't call into work to sleeping, being calm. Like my mental health improved significantly. I mean, that was one of the driving forces to write the book was to talk about that improvement in mental health. So, yeah, I mean, if there was a food I'd recommend for mental health, it would definitely be red meat. <laughs> that is, yeah. I mean, that is such a controversial thing to say, but, um, I believe it's true also because um, for myself, having dealt with uh, depression and anxiety um, and having like kind of a history of that, um, when I eat certain foods, um, I will feel, you know, more anxious or, or I'll feel just like a depression in mood um, for the next day. And it could even be for the next like few days, for example, if I have like a quote unquote, like cheat meal or something that I usually don't eat. Um, and so this, this totally makes sense to me. And I had a question about something you said about, um, insulin resistance being found in the brain, but not the body. So mm -hmm. would that, would that assume that the person is not overweight or obese, but could still have that going on in the brain? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And I think that's one of the most difficult things is, you know, if you're, if you're obese and diabetic, like we can easily see that it's like, Oh, your A1C is high. Your blood glucose is high. If, you know, if most doctors don't test fasting insulin, but your fasting insulin is, you know, really high. Um, 
but yeah, there, there, we don't have tests. We didn't even used to think the brain used or <laughs> needed insulin. And now we know it does or it can. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you can be super lean. You can be incredibly fit and you can still have insulin resistance in the brain. And like why that happens, we don't know potentially right. like, um, epilepsy, it could just be like a genetic, a genetic thing. Wow. Yeah. And like, that's crazy because one of the main arguments for like eating everything in moderation, which is like a huge thing that I think I actually want to ask you about also, because I know you're against kind of that idea. Um, if you have someone who looks fit, but in their brain, they're, they're not able to, you know, create energy like they should be, you know, they are insulin resistant. They're not able to use uh, glucose very effectively. Um, because one of the arguments is that if you, um, are a good body weight, then you basically almost can't have insulin resistance. It's like, I've seen that kind of messaging with nutritionists and dietitians. Mm -hmm. Like even if you do, um, basically their whole point is if you calorie restrict, then basically you're, you're fine. Or if you just eat at maintenance, like you're fine, no matter what composition of those foods, um, they, they are right. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, that's, that's the myth that will never die. This little calorie nonsense. Like, you know, my six-year-old niece can tell you that 600 calories of donuts have a different, how she feels with 600 calories of chicken. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so silly that some people think you can eat anything and it has nothing to do with, um, well, I shouldn't say nothing, but less to do with the energy uh, density, meaning the calories versus what, what does it have? How, what impact does it have on the hormones in your body? You know? Um, right. and so obviously there's a very different, you know, you eat 600 calories of donuts, you're going to get a glucose spike and insulin rush, you know, probably some cortisol, all this stuff where obviously if you eat 600 calories of meat, you know, you're going to have a much more stable, um, you know, release of hormones. So, uh, yeah, you can be, and like, once again, just going back to the epilepsy, like babies are born with epilepsy, you know, and, there's nothing, they didn't do anything wrong to get it. It's just genetic. And we also know that there's a lot of people who are very lean that are what they call skinny fat, have a lot of visceral fats, um, mm -hmm. potentially around their organs. So, you know, what you look like, I would say doesn't necessarily, isn't going to probably is not going to show you very well what's going on in your brain. You know, you can be super lean, healthy and fit and be massively depressed, you know, have, some, right. you know, dysfunction, miscommunication going on in your brain. So, I mean, I would say anybody who's struggling with depression, anxiety, um, you know, and, and certainly we know that like some of the basic things, reducing sugar exercise can help with mood, but truly if you, if you, if it is an insulin issue in your brain, it makes sense to take that out of the equation, you know, at least, um, or reduce it. See if you can't be feeling off that in ketones. So the first kind of thing, which is, which we're challenging here with the conventional uh, dogma of nutrition is uh, basically like the whole grains essentially, or even like the, um, not only the whole grains, but the processed carbohydrates, like both can still be very, um, can raise your blood sugar up super, super high. And then like come crashing down later on. Um, what else is it about the nutritional guidelines that could be harmful for brain health and mood? Oh man. Um... You know, I think that obviously the base, I mean, you nailed it, is that carbohydrates. And I just, I, I thought so much more about this after my trip, just because, you know, when you're, you can eat, so many people start their day eating these cereals, bagels, pastas, all the, you're not pastas, but like, um, you know, breads. And it, when you start your day that way, you're basically setting yourself up to be hungry. I mean, and you need, you need animal meat and fat. And so people are just eating so many carbohydrates. They're just not getting 
you know, we're becoming massively overfed and we're becoming malnourished for the first time in history, you know, we're an yeah. overfed malnourished society. Um, I would also say that, you know, protein is such a small part <laughs> of that equation. It's so silly to me because, you know, protein, I mean, it comes from the Greek word proteus. It's of first importance. You know, it's so important in the body. Everybody thinks proteins like, ah, muscle, which obviously it's important in, in muscle building, but it also, it has, it's, it makes your hormones. It lets your cells communicate. It's part of your immune system. It's so important. So to say like, you know, uh, oh, you only need a few ounces a day is nonsense. And then fat, their fat is at the very tip and it says use sparingly. And they want you to use canola oils and other nonsense where it's like, ideally we would be taking in a lot of fat. When you take in fat, you're going to be satiated. You know, mm -hmm. like once again, when you're eating all these carbohydrates, they are setting you up to be hungry. And you know, when you eat, when you eat carbohydrates, I mean, one thing that I like to teach, I always tell people, if you take nothing else away from a talk, insulin suppresses fatty acid oxidation. That's a very fancy way of saying when you get an insulin response, it shuts down your body's ability to burn fat for fuel. Ideally, we want to be burning as much fat for fuel throughout the day. That what that if you're not trying to lose weight, it keeps your energy stable, you're feeling great. If you are trying to lose weight, you certainly want to be able to tap in your own body fat. But every single day, we, we're telling our body, don't burn fat, burn sugar. Don't burn fat, burn sugar. Even our kids, it's like, I have Fruit Loops, I have this insulin spike, I have a granola bar, I have it, like constantly eating pastas and sandwiches and carbs and carbs and carbs and carbs. So, but when you have a nutrition guidelines that say that should be the base of our diet, we have all these dietitians saying, eat this, eat that, you know, eat all this, uh, eat these in moderation, um, which, you know, we can talk about that too. And then we have these things that we really should make up the base of our diet being kind of pigeonholed into small, um, you know, parts of the nutrition plan. And then things like fruits and vegetables. I mean, the nutrition guidelines even count like a, a fresh juice is <laughs> a serving of fruit. Nobody should be drinking juice <laughs> unless you're like accidentally someone gave you too much insulin and you're going like scary hypoglycemic, like you don't need juice. Like that's mm. terrible for human health. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, they're yeah. all kinds of wrong. Tell me about the oils a little bit more. Cause I know you talked about like canola and like vegetable seed oils. What's the problem with those in terms of like emotional and, and brain health? Yeah. And, you know, I wish I'd written a little bit more about this in my book. I learned, I learned more about it kind of post publication, but you know, what we know is just that they're, they're inflammatory. They're basically inflammatory and they also cause oxidation. Um, there are two things that can really cause, um, you know, oxidation and heart disease, you know, cause people, that's another thing, you know, we could talk about, I'll, I'll kind of wrap this around in mental health. Um, you know, when, during the seventies specifically people like freaked out about saturated fat and meat. Cause you look in like occluded arteries and you would actually see LDL. You would see this, like, so people, what people thought was, oh my God, we eat animal meat and fat, our LDL goes up, that's clogging arteries. Right. But then, like you said, we look at those traditional cultures that eat the new Eskimos, 80% fat, and they have no heart disease. So the question is what is causing the LDL to get stuck in the arteries? Well, one thing we know that um, there has to be damage. Something has to get damaged in your arteries for it to get uh, stuck. And one of the main drivers of damage is hyperglycemia over time. So if you're eating a lot of sugar and processed carbohydrates, that's why we know that type two diabetics have a two to fourfold at risk. And also oils, these seed oils can actually damage our arteries. Seed oils are very damaging. Um, they also, they lack you know, everything in the human bodies, ideally it's supposed to work synergistically. Like when you eat 
you know, meat, you know, it's not just, once again, the protein, that's all the vitamins and minerals that's supposed to work. It works perfectly and synergistically in your body. When you eat these vegetable oils, it's, it causes damage. It causes inflammation. It's a man-made product that really shouldn't be in the human body. So once again, that can do that same thing we talked about with um, processed carbohydrates and sugar that can shift glutamate up, that can make it difficult to cope with stress, that can um, make it difficult to, you know, to think clearly. Um, it's just, a, it's a mess, you know, and it, it's, it's really sad to me. I mean, we have whole aisles in our grocery stores that are basically like, <laughs> like, they, I mean, they, you, instead of like cooking oils, it should be changed to like health destroyers, this aisle. <laughs> Yeah, I was actually talking to someone about that a couple of months ago, like they should have um, in products, like if they're GMO, they should have like GMO rich or like pesticide rich or like, you know, yeah. all the things that are bad, like they should have on the label, right? Like all of those things that are potentially negative. Um, and in terms of the oils, they were actually first used for automotive purposes. Like they were first used as like in machine shops um, and just knowing how they're made. Um, I mean, I know there's a lot of controversy around seed oils, like canola, soybean, like grapeseed, all of those things. Um, but just knowing how they're made, how they're produced is honestly enough to make me say this cannot possibly be a health food. That's, you know, heart healthy. Like there's no way this is that's possible. Like you take a soybean and you put it under immense pressure and immense heat. And then, you know, you, you mix it with like a uh, you know, some solvent, some chemical solvent to try to get rid of the disgusting smell and the disgusting how it looks because it's foggy at the beginning. And it's like, there is no possible way this is a health food. Yeah. Well, it never was. It's not, you know, the only reason it got the heart healthy stamp is because they, you know, the government and all their wisdom decided that butter was bad because like we talked, I mean, they thought it caused heart disease, which it doesn't. Um, and so they're like, well, what a, you know, vegetable oil, it's low in saturated fat. This, this must be good because butter is bad. You know, it's, it's all mm -hmm. based on false premises. And of course, there's a lot of funding too, that these companies pay, these vegetable oils company pay to have those, you know, quote unquote, heart healthy um, insignias on there. So yeah, it's ridiculous. You know, it's like, who thought it was a good idea to pump hydrogen into things like partially hydrogenated oils. Like if you look at traditional peanut butters, like that, peanut butter will live longer than you and I like that can't be good. <laughs> they're literally pumping hydrogen into it that's what hydrogenation is to make things last until you know the world ends that is not a healthy thing to put in your body yeah um, in terms of um some cofactors that you know are included in meat some vitamins and minerals um because you mentioned how vitamin a the plant form is difficult to turn into the more active form that only like a few people um, select people can actually do that efficiently. Um, is there anything else and specifically anything else that is are in animal foods that you wouldn't be able to get or absorb as much from plant foods that could potentially boost brain health and, and mood? Oh, yeah. I mean, iron is a huge one. I mean, iron, you know, people associate iron with um, just oxygenation of your cells and energy, but it's important. And brain health and zinc is incredibly important. Um, B12, you know, B12, there's no B12 in plants. Um, I believe those are the main ones. Someone's going to come back and be like, you forgot, blah, blah, blah. I'm sure there's more B vitamins, you know? I mean, yeah. the B vitamins are mostly in animal proteins. Right. And, you know, this isn't here to say specifically that like plants, you know, you can certainly get some nutrition from plants, but it's such so much smaller and there's just not enough 
you know, there's not enough. You'd have to eat so much plants to try to get enough nutrition. And then there's often those anti-nutrients and plants that are going to cause you to not absorb them as well. So yeah, I mean, it's ruminant animals are really a game changer when it comes to, to mental health. You know, if somebody is listening to this and really struggling, um, with mental health, you know, really taking the time to reduce or eliminate a lot of those carbohydrates, specifically ones that, you know, are going to bind with the vitamins and minerals, the ones high in phytic acid and lectins and oxalates, really taking some time to focus on those ruminant animals is, is, it's a game changer. Is there any research into how, um, potentially anti-nutrients because the way that I think about some anti-nutrients is that for some people, again, this isn't saying like everyone needs to just avoid all plant foods, but for some people who are more sensitive to these things like lectins, oxalates, phytic acid, um, all those kind of things, um, are those, wow, I totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, no, I got you. Like, oh, are there are some people maybe more sensitive, or like, how do we figure yeah. out? Like, oh, there's a I, lot of questions around. Yeah. That. So, so what? Yeah. What I was getting to was, could those potentially harm the gut in a way which harms, you know, brain health um, or mood? Because you know, you make like a lot of the serotonin in your gut, for example. Yeah. You know, I honestly don't know if there's like a specific clinical trial I could point you to, but I think yeah. we can pretty confidently say that we know, I mean, we do know that certain, um, plants, uh, the anti-nutrient specific daily lectins, um, some of the glutens oxalates can actually, it can impact the gut. And we, like you mm -hmm. said, the gut is often called the second brain. Right. Um, and you know, even think about it, people are like, do you know, what does your gut tell you? What is your, yeah. <laughs> um, and how I like to think about like anti-nutrients, you know, because people are like, oh my God, can I never have peanut butter or plants or whatever again? Well, if you're coming from a place where your health is pretty poor, like flashback to when I was 2019, when I was a mess, my health was a mess. You know, if, if you've been eating processed foods or obese or severely depressed, you know, your gut's probably damaged. Your body probably needs a break. So what I think, you know, makes the most sense to do is to really eliminate those foods, you know, focus on those nutrient dense animal foods and fats. And then, you know, you can slowly add things back in. You know, I found there's a few select plant foods that I consume regularly now that I have new issues with, you know, carrots, berries, a few other things. Um, but yeah, some people, and we don't know if it's more genetic are very sensitive. My wife, um, actually <laughs> she's Italian too. So she's just, uh, hates it, but she's very sensitive to nightshades. They cause pain, you know, so tomatoes, peppers, um, tomatoes are a big <laughs> sadness, <laughs> but yeah, you know, so, um, we know the brain and the gut are connected to, mm -hmm. to what degree and to how much anti-nutrients affect that. I, I certainly can't say for sure, but I think this is also kind of interesting why we're all an experiment of one per se. You know, yes. I've had some people have, um, you know, really incredible, like myself, really impressive, quick results. Some people, it takes a little bit longer. Um, you know, some people may even do better than I do. Some people may not see a huge difference, but in my, my opinion and my experience is I've, I've seen just so many improvements like over and over again, you know, to where I've presented on, um, <laughs> these things at major conferences, um, and mental health and eating disorder recovery, when we focus on a meat and fat and we really reduce or eliminate, you know, carbohydrates, at least for a period of time. Have you ever had patients, um, who actually don't do well, like with low carb or with animal-based eating? Um, that's a great question. I, you know, I've had, I've seen people that have, um, some autoimmune issues that just didn't respond. And that's always kind of crummy, you know, cause you're like, yeah. ah, you know, you, 
they're doing everything and they're still having uh, like rheumatoid arthritis, having pain. Um, The biggest problems I've seen when people do really poorly, and I've Mm -hmm. I've seen some people do really poorly is um, they, well, two things. One, certainly coming from the eating disorder world, uh, people will embrace a meat and fat diet and under eat. You know, Mm. it's like, I went from under eating the standard American diet. Now I feel better because I'm not getting a lot of the sugar and nutrient, you know, uh, they're nonsense from processed foods, but I'm still under eating. And Mm. so now I'm just underweight with this, you know, animal foods. Um, so that, that's unfortunate. I see that sometimes. Mm. Okay. Um, oh, and I do think, I think many people need some carbohydrates. There is a, there's kind of a, um, or can benefit, especially if you're active, you're, um, a, a premenopausal woman during around your period, it can benefit you behoove you to have 25 to 50 grams of carbs. And people get so much health with this like zero carb diet that they get afraid. Like, oh, I don't yeah. want to add anything back. It can actually set you back. So then this will always include, you know, ask people to be open. Don't be dogmatic. Be, you know, because the goal, obviously there's like no metals for <laughs> being zero carb or all animal based. The goal is metabolic health and metabolic yeah. flexibility. You know, we want right. to be able to burn carbs and fat and we want to be able to, you know, enjoy life. And I think it makes sense um, to be able to enjoy some fruit, some honey, some some things. And for most people, um, you know, once you're metabolically healthy, once again, there's a big difference between a metabolically healthy human and someone who's maybe 400 pounds obese, diabetic, they probably need to be zero carb or very, very low carb for a while. So those would be the biggest groups that I see that struggle. Okay. Got it. What do you think about fiber for brain health and just overall health? Because I know that's something that's, um, you know, there are a lot of books that I've seen. One that I read a couple of years ago um, called The Mind Gut Connection, which really advocates for uh, more plant-based, I guess, just because um, the idea is if you're eating these prebiotic fibers that are fueling your gut microbiome, um, you're producing more butyrate, you're producing more of those short chain fatty acids, um, you know, your, your gut is healthier. And then in a way, you're also kind of creating more uh, serotonin in your gut. And then that can be helpful for brain health. What are you, what are you, your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I, I kind of lean the other direction. And, you know, I read some really good papers, um, even from Dr. Lustig, and um, they really are more fans of fiber, I mean, still low carb. But I, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. And that we know that throughout history, I mean, especially in Arctic conditions, people would go for sometimes years without eating fiber, decades without eating fiber. Um, and certainly working in the hospital setting, I've seen people have more problems. <laughs> you know, it's also, it's fibers is like magical thing. People are like, oh, you're constipated. You need fiber. You need fiber. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, you have diverticulitis, you know, oh, once we get your system calmed down, you need fiber. And it's like, it causes, it causes more problems than I think it actually can help. Um, as far as fueling the, the microbiome, I mean, we just don't have good evidence that that's the case. Like we really don't. And people that say they do, I don't, I'd, I'd love to see your research, but we have, we know that people who eat, you know, mostly meat diets have a pretty diverse microbiome, you know? Um, and once again, I am a fan of having some plant foods. I think every, we know through history, there was no vegan culture. There was no carnivore culture. Everybody ate some bark, some this and yes. mostly meat. <laughs> so I don't necessarily think you have to have, you know, I wouldn't ever tell someone like you need the specific amount of fiber to fuel your body, to feel good. Um, 
I think, like I said, I think it does more, more harm, harm than good. I mean, it was funny when I was hanging out with my sister, she was like, God, you don't need any plants really, huh? And I'm like, nah, <laughs> it weighs, to me, it wastes calories too. Like I, I need the room, you know, I, I, my, my body as an athlete requires, you know, 3,500, sometimes 4,000 calories. Like I'm not waste that in lettuce. I need meat and fat, you know? Yeah. And guess what? Our half of our society thinks eating a salad for lunch is great. Well, guess what? They're hungry. And now they fill this, their stomach up with this nonsense. And so they're going to have gas and bloating and all these issues when they would have been much better just eating some ground beef. <laughs> so I just, yeah, I, but I'm open. I'm open to that. Yeah. If somebody, if the research comes out that says like, Hey, you know what? You are much better if you have 10 grams of plants or fiber or something then I'm happy to have that discussion. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love that you said that, um, there's not very convincing and solid evidence for the fact that fiber is really this essential thing for a healthy microbiome. I think, first of all, there are so many things which play into a healthy microbiome, like your psychological stress, for example, has been shown to affect your gut microbiome. The amount of exercise and types of exercise you do can affect the microbiome. Um, you know, your exposure, I mean, the things you're breathing in every day can mm -hmm. affect your microbiome. And the most balanced of physicians and health professionals like you, which I've talked to, they, they say the exact same thing. They say, look, like I get that you're vegan and maybe it helped you because you transitioned from a, a really, really bad diet from the standard American diet, you transitioned to whole foods, plant-based, right? And yeah, that's better than the standard American diet. But was it really the fact that you went vegan and excluded animal products that made you healthy? Or was it the fact that you were excluding the standard American diet products of processed stuff? Right. Um, yeah. And so I, I would agree just from the experts that I've interviewed on the gut microbiome, there was a study by uh, Dr. Lucy Mailing, who um, I think it was called reframing nutritional microbiota studies. I'll link to it in the description, but um, it talked about exactly that, how we are so flexible as a species to different fuels. And to think that, like you said, we needed fiber in all contexts to fuel a good microbiome to be healthy is probably not right. Our gut microbiome can adapt to actually use different sorts of fuels, right? Like it can even use, um, like some metabolites of fat as fuel um, and amino acids as fuel rather than just relying on the fiber. So um, yeah, I would agree with you there. I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, the eating disorders because you mentioned that, you know, for yourself, that was something that was incredibly liberating. Um, we know that certain foods that are hyper palatable um, in brain studies, you know, it shows that they have very similar um, effects as, as drug abuse. Um, so for you, how did going animal-based, uh, help and how can going animal-based or going low carb <laughs> help with that, I guess? Yeah. And, you know, I totally validate if anybody hears this, like there's just, I mean, the standard advice is that if you have a dysfunctional relationship with food, if you're anorexic, bulimic, deal with binge eating disorder, orthorexia, you should not, not, not never in a million years go low carb. Like that was, I was told that like, no keto, no this, no that. Um, and I think the advice comes from a good place, but you know, what, well, I, I you know, I say a couple of things first, first, I think we need to redefine what is food, you know, telling someone with an eating disorder, like you have to eat all things in moderation. You, you know, that's equating, you have to be able to eat meat and chicken and cookies and Oreos and, um, is really setting somebody up for failure. You know, so for me, certainly, um, you know, and, and I talked about this in my book, my wife was not thrilled about this. She thought it was eating disordered and restrictive. 
Um, but like I said, you know, I felt very liberated when I changed how I ate and I started eating, you know, all this bioavailable nutrition and fat, I believe too, my, my blood sugar finally stabilized and my brain finally was synapsing and focusing correctly. And for the first time in a long time, I was calm. I wasn't worried about food. I was excited to eat because I actually felt good. Like I would eat a meal and my stomach would hurt. I'd get anxious and, you know, sometimes dizzy. Like I didn't have those symptoms anymore. Uh, it was... I felt like I was, I felt more connected to food because I was learning more about it. You know, it's visiting farms. We were raising chickens. Um, it, it became like a really good and powerful thing to nourish my body. And I no longer crave, you know, I, I couldn't go for more than a few hours without eating before. And I could go, you know, easily five to six hours. Like that was, <laughs> that in itself just felt great. Mm-hmm. And it felt good to be able to sit down and, um, easily eat over a thousand calories. I couldn't, it was, that was hard for me to do on a high carbohydrate diet because all that sugar and carbs would just make me sick to my stomach. So yeah, you know, and, and my argument to people, a couple of things, there's a great study, you know, they did a case study with Dr. Sethi Shabani, um, with a year long people, three people that had severe, um, binge eating disorder, they were put on a ketogenic diet and these were three people who didn't know each other, you know, different parts of the United States. And they all, um, had complete remission. And these were people that had been struggling for decades. They also were all morbidly obese. They all lost weight during the study. They also Mm -hmm. all improved, um, uh, symptoms of depression, you know, Mm -hmm. and we know, I mean, we know just stabilizing blood sugar can help, but I also would theorize that these people are finally getting bioavailable nutrition. And for someone dealing with anorexia, you know, how we treat people with anorexia is a crime. You know, these people, like when I was 12 and I was, you know, starving to death, 57 pounds, five feet tall, you're immediately put on a two feeding system that's full of maltodextrin and sugar. You're forced to eat 3000 calories of the standard American diet, which is carbs and carbs and sugar. I mean, your starvation damages your intestinal epithelium. Your system is damaged. You cannot absorb things. I had so many GI issues. Um, also your brain, we know the, the gray and the white matter, um, matter of the brain atrophy. So it needs saturated fat and you're fed canola oil. You're fed all these inflammatory oils. And so to me, you know, if we're going to restore health and re-nourish, you know, somebody's body, it needs to be in a way that's going to support, <laughs> support their health. And so, you know, but I also validate that, you know, this really, I would highly recommend anybody who's in eating disorder recovery to work with somebody, you know, a dietitian, a doctor, um, that is very familiar with ketogenic and low carb diets. Cause most people are going to tell you, no, that'll set you back. Blah. But you know, <laughs> it's so dumb. Like it's like everything else in healthcare. It's like eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric disorder, anorexia specifically. And more people will die of anorexia than, than major depression, schizophrenia, I mean, the relapse rate is through the roof. It's like, we can't keep doing the same dumb thing and expecting people to heal, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like all these medical professionals and dietitians that are like, oh, that's restrictive. Stop it. You know, like you're not, you're not helping. You're not helping push the paradigm. You're just parroting this nonsense you've learned. So it's, I get <laughs> fired up about it. So anyway, that would be my recommendation because this, and, yeah. and the disease is multifaceted. You know, people are like, well, right. it's not just the food, it's your trauma. Well, guess what? When your stomach doesn't hurt and your mind is clear and your body's nourished, you're, it's a lot easier to work on your trauma. That's, so, yeah. I'm, and that's like, I'm not, I'm, I say that a little bit like tongue in cheek, but I can tell you, and I've interviewed many people, the same thing. Mm-hmm. Recovering from an eating disorder is one of the hardest things people will ever do. The hardest thing I've ever done in my life. 
but it's a lot easier <laughs> when you have the mental clarity and um, fortitude. So, right. Yeah. When you can process all that. Exactly. Yeah. How much time do we have, by the way? I don't want to keep you over. Your oh, time. I don't. Yeah. I got, yeah, I'm good for Okay. <laughs> a little okay. Bit. Good. So, yeah. um, Cause I wanted to talk about uh, saturated fat, which is what you mentioned. You know, you don't need the canola oils when you're healing from, um, an eating disorder, you, you need okay. the saturated fat to help with brain health. And a lot of people would kind of cringe at that and be like, what? Like saturated fat? Like, why would you ever like recommend saturated fat? Um, so could you um, kind of explain your thought process behind that? And also you mentioned a, a pretty large study in your book, which showed kind of outcomes of, um, of consuming saturated fat on health. Yeah. Well, like once again, the premise that we were, that saturated fat was bad. I mean, it's, it's kind of a long history, you know, basically started with Ansel Keys and they were, people were freaking out about heart health and, you know, he reported in his study. I mean, he basically found that meat and animal products did not cause saturated fat, but that didn't match his hypothesis. So he left out half of his study and just said, Oh, look at, look at these. <laughs> So we have this guy who did this incomplete reporting. Sugar industry paid two scientists from Harvard to throw saturated fat under the bus and publish this, you know, and, and at that point you didn't have to tell where your funding is coming from. Now you're supposed to disclose where you're getting funding from. Right. Um, and yeah, and you know, in my, in my book, in my chapter on heart disease, we talk about all these studies where people, you know, the higher their LDL, the, the, the le less chance they had of having uh, mortality. They, they had less chance of having infections and less chance. And like study after study came back saying like, Hey, look, we, we shouldn't be recommending that people necessarily reduce their LDL. And I've said before, it's like, we can't look at LDL in a vacuum because yes, if you get a ton of saturated fat, your LDL will go up. But there's a lot of there's a lot of hypothesis that LDL is actually important in your immune system. It is actually important function. You know, critical has critical functions in your body. LDL only becomes a problem when you have a, when you have inflammation and oxidation. Which what is that caused by? You know, like I said earlier, it's caused by hyperglycemia. If you're diabetic, that's a problem. You don't want high LDL. Um, but it's not the it's not the saturated fat that's causing the problem. It's the it's the sugar. So. We know too that saturated fat has, um, you know, a lot of vitamins, minerals, you know, that you need, um, those fat soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K. Um, and just once again, if we can just take a step back and if you don't know or care about science, just use your common sense. Like we evolved eating nothing but meat and saturated fat. We are completely healthy and free of chronic disease, you know? Yeah. I, I saw a study similar to that too, where, um, you know, people who were older, like into their beyond their 60s and 70s who had higher LDL actually, you know, had lower all cause mortality and lower, you know, instances of neurodegeneration, like dementia and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll take my chances with that. Yes, me too. <laughs> me as well. Um, I wanted to ask you because there is a there's a counter argument to um, consuming fat instead of consuming like carbohydrates, which is that excess fat can also cause insulin resistance. Um, so what would be your kind of thoughts on that? I've seen no good studies on that. And, you know, like I said, I worked for 11 years and I never, never, and I even actually did a poll with my dietitians and say, you know, got, I got 49 people to respond. Have you ever had someone come into your ho hospital on a ketogenic diet for any reason? Mm -hmm. I never saw it. I, I personally never saw anybody 
that was like, man, I'm eating all this meat and saturated fat and I'm diabetic. Never happened. And mm-hmm. of the 49 people that responded to my poll, only one person had had someone come into their hospital on a ketogenic diet and they were a cyclist that crashed. So, um, yeah. So just to answer your question, like, I don't see how that happens. The only thing I could possibly think of is if you were just guzzling canola oil, maybe if you're doing enough inflammation, um, but once again, I don't know if that would mesh your hormones up enough that that's, that's out of my area of expertise, but it doesn't, to me, it doesn't make sense because we know that fat, um, fat is very stable. Fat, fat minimizes the insulin response. You know, we get minimal, minimal out of the three macronutrients, protein, carbohydrates, and fat, fat is like, is levels aboard. You know, we get a little bit from protein and a much higher response from carbohydrates. So it's like, To me, that doesn't make sense, yeah. but I'm open to, you know, and I, I'm certainly would be open to hearing and I, I could be wrong about vegetable oil, which maybe vegetable oil does something that I don't know about as far as that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, the reason I ask is because I've had several clients now who've done like ketogenic diets and some of them will say, like I had one, for example, who listened to Dr. Stephen Gundry, and this is not to like trash Dr. Stephen Gundry, but he sells a, an olive oil that is apparently like a really good quality olive oil. and my client said that her doctor who recommended that oil to her said, here, consume like six tablespoons of this every single day, in addition to the food you're already eating, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and she was following like paleo-ish um, and she gained weight, right? And so that's where kind of my opinion has evolved to be like, well, you know, maybe you probably can overdo it on the fat if you're consuming, if you're adding excess oils to kind of everything. Oh yeah. I mean, for sure. Yeah. Like if you're already eating like a, re- a relatively paleo diet, I mean, you're getting a couple yeah. hundred grams of carbs and you add a thousand grams of fat. <laughs> I mean, yeah. unless you're running like me and you know, my coach, unless yeah. you're running a hundred miles a week, that might not be the best thing to do. But what well, I'm talking like a very low carbohydrate, high fat diet. I have not seen that. If you're doing 60 to 70% um, fat, I'd be very surprised if you'd have any types of insulin resistance. But if you're doing a moderate carbohydrate diet, and you add, start adding quite a bit of oils. I mean, I could see that, but once right. again, I don't think it's the oils. <laughs> right, right, right. I think it's the carbs. Yeah, I think, yeah, the, the main argument that I've seen that I agree with is that you can either go low fat, um, and if that works for you, then great. Or you can either do low carb, but you can't really do like a mixture of the two where you're trying to be somewhere in between because that can sometimes go off the rails for people who do tend to, um, you know, overeat. Yeah, no, and I agree. And yeah, we do know there are some people who follow very uh, low fat diets that seem to do okay. Yeah. Um, My final question for you, what would you say to someone who is, um, what would you say to someone who's vegan and who, you know, is is very like, uh, set in their ways and just hasn't heard anything outside of that, but they're kind of struggling with their health? Well, are they asking my opinion? Because if not, I'm not saying anything to them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, they straight up asked my opinion. Yes. Um, you know, I think I would say, you know, if you're open, can I, let me, let's just talk about the science. Are you, do you, well, I'd ask, do you want to hear the science or what are you open to? Or maybe even ask like, why did you go vegan in the first place? Mm-hmm. And if they say, well, I did it for my health. Okay, well, are you open to hearing about like how, you know, some animal products can actually benefit your health? And maybe like, oh, I, I want to do it for the animals. Well, you're open to me talking about, you know, veganism may not actually be best for the animals. So, I mean, I can hit it from any point they talk about, because, you know, obviously they want to yeah. talk about the planet. It's not good for the planet. want to talk about animals, not good for animals. When I talk about health, it's not good for health, but I would be happy to, you know, you have to meet people where they're at. And a lot yeah. of people you have to be kind of gentle with say, well, maybe we could start with something simple. Like, how do you feel about adding some eggs to your diet? How do you feel about maybe 
okay, seeing how you feel. How do you feel about this? Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard for me because I just think veganism is the big, one of the biggest scams, you know, it's, and it's also such a privileged thing, you know, it's like, if you don't, if you don't have this money to supplement and to go to Whole Foods and buy all this stuff, you're going to get sick over time. So, um, but I would be kind, I would share the research and I would try to, um, slowly move them towards, uh, getting some bioavailable protein and fat. Yeah. Um, where can people find out more about you? I know you have your book, um, the dietitian, yeah. Dilemma, which I actually have around here. Um, but. <laughs> so the dietitian's dilemma is on Amazon. I've got the paperback audible and ebook, um, honored. If y'all check that out, so I'm going to be publishing a low carbon endurance course very soon by the mm -hmm. end of April. So I'm super excited about that, but I'm most active on Instagram, um, at run, eat, meet, repeat all one word, um, on Twitter at Michelle Hearn, RD. My website, the dietitianslemma.net, um, can link you directly to me or to my book. And yeah, I think that's it. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it far and wide with as many friends and family as possible. And please check out my book, Return to Human, How Modern Medicine, the Media, and the Mundane Have Destroyed Our Health and How to Move Back Towards Optimal Health. You can find it on Amazon. Just click the little filter, books. And please remember to rate this podcast on iTunes. That would help us get this message out to way more people. Thank you for listening.